Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Wow. What can a person say? So, anyway. Well, I have a lot to talk about. Godly stuff about the Bible. And, um, and uh, I have a lot of ground to cover, so I'm just going to dive right in. Is that okay? Okay, that's good. Um, one, of the things, uh, one of the things that's nice about needing to cover a lot of ground is Reed already did a good introduction. I can't believe I'm talking like this after all that. But Reed actually opened up this series pretty well, and he talked about a lot of things that the prophets um, are and aren't, and well, some of the misconceptions we have. One of those misconceptions being oftentimes when we think of prophets, we think about you know, fortune tellers future tellers. Um, hold on a second, it's just very hot up here. I mean, sometimes prophets are known. I mean, it's not that they don't tell the future. Sometimes, sometimes they do. And sometimes when they tell that future, a lot of times the common the common uh, response is that people get a lot of ridicule. Prophets got a lot of ridicule. Until later when those prophecies come true. And, um, <laughs> and, then, and, th- and then all of a sudden everything feels different in hindsight, you know? So I'm, I'm, really, I'm really glad to be here. All jokes aside, I promise that's the last one I have this morning. But all jokes aside, uh, when Reed actually said you guys were doing a, a series on, on the prophets, my all, full disclosure, since Bible college, so 20, 25 years ago, I have always had a problem mixing up two prophets, Micah and Malachi. I don't know why, it's just one of those funny things. Four years of undergrad focused on the Bible, 20 years of teaching the Bible ministry, and I still can't seem to get Micah and Malachi straight in my head. So my brain, when Reed, when Reed and I were talking back and forth about what I wanted to preach on, was, was I was thinking Malachi, but I was saying Micah. And so I got ready to actually prepare this sermon a couple weeks ago and sat down to do this sermon and realized, oh, no, I've been thinking about the wrong prophet. And then I had two choices. I was either going to write Reed because I was pretty sure that nobody had Malachi, so I was going to be okay. Or I sat back and I'm kind of like, okay, so was, what, is, what does God want me to do here in this moment? And I felt like I, I was going to stay with Micah. So I want to talk about Micah today. And it wasn't the sermon I was originally thinking, but it's the sermon that we prepared anyway. So here's my, there's no thunderous, profound, inductive, there's no chiasm I'm going to talk about today. I know, I know. There's no thunderous inductive teaching that I'm going to drop on you at the end. I just want to walk through Micah. And my prayer and preparation for the last couple weeks is that somewhere along the way, there will be something in the exegesis, something in the examination, something in the chat for every single one of you. That somewhere, and there might be multiple things, but that somewhere along the way, and for, and for each one of you, it might be different. There might be this, there might be something in the beginning of the prophet for one, but it might be the conclusion for somebody else. But my prayer is that, so I want you to be thinking, I want you to be listening, I want you to be reflecting and have your spiritual eyes open for whatever the little treasure is that you need to take away from here this morning. Does that make sense? Okay, excellent. Can I actually pray? Let's pray that that would happen this morning. 
Father God, we uh, oftentimes will gather together weekly. We get together every every Sunday, every week to to get together for this thing we call worship. And part of that that worship expression is a message called uh, called a sermon or whatever different words we might use. But it's this moment where um, we, we kind of turn our face, we turn our gaze, we turn our souls towards the word. And, and we do that because we believe that your spirit, um, well, we believe in the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We believe that, uh, that the word is this powerful, mysterious, uh, supernatural thing that you use to shape us, uh, to comfort us, to encourage us, to provoke us. All of those things are going to be here in the prophet of Micah today. We're, we're going to have confrontation, and we're going to have encouragement, and we're going to have hope, and we're going to have judgment. Um, and every single one of us is in a different place today. Uh, a lot of us in the middle of a, that first semester stretch where we're just trying to get through to some holiday breaks. Um, God, whatever word you have for us, would you talk to us? Uh, would you would you just plant uh, a seed or two that you can water throughout this next week or this next season, um, something that you might give us that uh, doesn't have to be super big and profound, it doesn't have to be a really impressive sound bite or a tweet, but it would it would be enough that it would just kind of draw us and remind us of you in key moments. Um, Jesus, that's my prayer. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, Micah. I have titled Micah... A case against arrogance. A case against arrogance. Now, I, I say a case because Micah really is laid out like, a, like an ancient... So in the ancient world, they had these things called suzerain-vassal covenants. Say suzerain-vassal. So suzerain-vassal covenants are these ancient covenants, and it's not quite like the legal binding agreements we're used to today. We have contractual binding agreements today that are supposed to protect both parties. Oftentimes, usually, actually in our world, in our Western modern world, the contract is designed to, con to, to protect the party with the least amount of power. That's why the contract is so useful. In the ancient world, the contract was meant to define the relationship. And it was actually playing towards the party that had the most power. That's the suzerain. And then if the suzerain ruled over you, you were the vassal. So suzerain vassal covenants. We talk about this, uh, the Deuteronomy episode. If you want to get a deeper dive in the podcast, we talk about this in the Deuteronomy episode at the end of session one. But then court cases, which is kind of a weird expression for the ancient world. But if you wanted to bring a case in a, in a, to the judge in their kind of courtroom type setting, you, you basically designed your case against that covenant. You were basically saying there's a violation of the suzerain vassal covenant. And you're making your case and you're waiting for the judge to render a decision. Micah is set up as a prophecy. The whole prophecy, seven chapters, is set up like a, like a court case, like a prosecution. And it's walking through this relationship between a, a suzerain and a vassal. And it feels a little funny to us, but once you kind of see it and get your head around it, you're like, oh, okay, I, I totally get what Micah is doing. Forget the big numbers, the chapter breaks and all that stuff. You can see the conversation somewhat laid out in front of you. So I've kind of broken it down like this. The case that's being made is chapters 1 through 5. Now, the case itself won't necessarily be exactly like what we're used to. The verdict's going to show up in chapter 6, 
And kind of the conclusion to this whole trial is going to show up in chapter 7. I broke it down a little bit further like this. I, I, I personally like outlines. It helps my brain function correctly. So I, I did this. The case itself shows up in chapters 1, essentially through 6a. The first part is these four talking points, the four pieces of the covenant that the prophet Micah wants us to reflect on. They're not exactly accusations. Some of them will feel that way. They're just four larger talking points of the prophet. Judgment, exile, social ethics, and hope. It's not so much going to be prove that this person has broken the law as much as here's some things I want us to consider. Then the prophet's going to move to the failure of leadership in chapter 3. Then, then the prophet is also going to, again, not accusational. The prophet's going to talk about what the world could look like if you did the covenant correctly. And then the prophet's going to talk about divinely accepted behavior, and that's essentially the case. The prophet is saying, here's some talking points Here's the covenant. Here's the failure. Here's what it could have looked like. You tell me, judge, what you think. And that's going to lead to Micah 6b, which is going to be the verdict, and then that conclusion. Are you guys following me so far? This is kind of weird and squishy and academic-ish. I wouldn't say academic, but just like more like nerdy, less poetic. Okay, beautiful. You guys get poetry all the time here. Let's just give you some outlines, all right? That's right. All right, so here we go. Uh, let's walk through these four considerations. Again, these are just reflections. I do not believe that, I mean, Jesus could overrule me here, but I do not believe that you sitting here, everything on this outline is directed at you personally. That's not how the prophets work. The prophets are this divine conversation kind of pulled out of history that we're getting to eavesdrop on, and the invitation is for us to consider these things, and somewhere along the way, I'm hoping that Jesus has something for you. I would assume it's not on most of these slides. Most of these slides will be like, oh, yeah, that's cool. But one of these slides, Jesus might be like, hey, that's you. That's you. And it might be good, encouragement, hope, positive. It might be uncomfortable. I need to listen to that. I need to repent. Could be that too. Prophets are full of that. So the first one is uh, the consideration of judgment. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth, during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Micah's from, uh, I go to this place, Moresha. Um, I, I haven't taken many trips there with my students, but it is one of the sites that we always have in our back pocket. It's called Beit Guvrim today. Micah's from this place where you can, you literally can live in it's like an underground city. Like you've, maybe you've seen it in Turkey where they have that light rock. It's called tufa. It's a combination of volcanic ash. And you can basically take your fingernail and just kind of scrape away at the walls. And you can dig entire underground cities. So it's very, very similar at Moresha in Israel. It's not quite the same rock, but it's a similar situation where the rock is. And they've dug these entire cities underground, tunnels, rooms, Huge gathering spaces, refractories for eating, cafeterias, those, those kind of things. That's where Micah's from. He says, hear you peoples, all of you listen, earth, and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? 
Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Samaria and Jerusalem would probably represent um, in the same way that we might think of socio-political agendas in our world, ideologies. Samaria represents a particular, uh, it's the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. When the prophet uses it in this sense, I, I, I think what your mind is supposed to be drawn to is, well, that particular ideology, that particular worldview, that particular empire would be the, wor the word that we use within the podcast language. There's an empire there, but there's also an empire in the south. It's not like there's one empire that's on God's side and one empire that's not. The prophet calls out both of them. This, this thing you're doing, this thing that you're pursuing is unsustainable. I think about a lot, that a lot these days. I think about that a lot uh, as a Jew uh, right now and everybody wanting me to post something about the Israel Hamas conflict and all of these and, and take your pick and pick a side because if you don't pick the right side, I think you get the idea. These ideologies that you build, these worldviews, these teams, these sides, these empires, relatively unsustainable. It's not about getting the right jersey on most of the time. It was my last joke. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All of her idols will be broken into pieces. This is unsustainable. So, so make your social media post as clever and, and put that meme out there and just really get the other side. Mic drop. It, it's not going to lead to the world that we're all yearning for. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will, I will destroy her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes again, they will be used. This thing that we're building that feels so secure that feels like this is the stuff that matters every moment that we're in. And the moments seem to get smaller and smaller and smaller and pass by so quicker. This thing is unsustainable. Micah then says, let's think about exile. Here's the second thing that Micah wants to talk about. If this is unsustainable, consider, consider where this is all headed. Consider, what, consider what, what awaits you. So we just got done thinking about judgment. This can't sustain itself. So where does this lead, the prophet says? You who live in Lachish, harness fast horses, horses to the chariot. You, uh, you are where the sin of daughter Zion began, for the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Therefore, you will give parting gifts to Moresha Gat. One of the big installations at Moresha is, say, say Gat. Gat means press. Okay, so it's like an olive press or whatever kind of press you might have. So Moratia got, there's a huge olive press installation in Moratia. It probably is one of the main exports that they had at Moratia was olives. The town of Akzib will prove deceptive to the kings of Israel. I will bring a conqueror against you who live in Moratia. The nobles of Israel will flee to Adulam. Adulam is actually right next to Beit Gurim. If you, if you do this site, you usually just walk for about half an hour and you find yourself at Adulam. Adulam Mizpah is where David hid from Saul for much of the time that Saul was chasing him. It, again, it's this place where all these underground cities, you can run and you can hide. It was a great place for David to hide from Saul. All sorts of caves and different installations that he could hide in. This would be the place that feels safe. 
This would be the place that feel, it feels like you can run to. And, and Micah says, that, that's not going to help you. It's not going to work. The nobles of Israel will flee to Adullam. Shave your head in mourning for the children in whom you, will, in whom you delight. Make yourself as bald as the vulture, for they will go from you into exile. The prophet says, let's consider social ethics. And all the college students in America said, yes. Which I think is beautiful. It's not a critique. It's not me being passive aggressive. I do love that there's a generation that cares about such things. It's good. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it's in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. Doesn't sound familiar at all, does it? This is the world that you and I live in. It's the world that you and I probably think about and, and critique and think critically about often. A lot. These are people that are laying in bed and they plot evil. And so therefore, the Lord says, I am planning disaster. And there's a play in the Hebrew language. These people are plotting evil. Like there's actually a scheme to defraud people. And because you are plotting evil, I'm planning disaster. Because you're plotting and scheming evil, I'm going to make sure that this evil doesn't come to pass. I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. In that day, people will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. You descendants of Jacob, should it be said, does the Lord become impatient? Does he do such things? Do not my words do good to the one whose ways are upright? Lately, my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care. Like men returning from battle, you drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. God says, I care about people. This is, why you're, this, is why you're, this is why the judgment and the exile conversation matters, because I care about the people that it impacts. And then, and then the weirdest thing that the prophet wants to talk about, to me, originally when I started doing this study, hope. Now, in the middle of your, your trial, your court case, one of the four things you want to talk about is hope. I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen. Like a flock in its pasture, the place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. So this is a picture of a sheepfold. And you could jump on YouTube. You could, you could, you could just try to find videos on like cattle being let out in the spring where cattle have been put in one space or one barn through the winter, and now they're being ready to be let out to pasture. And so you can find YouTube videos all over where the, these, these dairy farmers and different things are throwing open the barn doors into a different spring pasture, and these cows, are, they're leaping. They're, it's the most ridiculous thing you can see. Or, or, in the, or in the world of the Bible, they'll do this with sheep. Uh, the, sheep the, the sheep folds will be in these pens overnight. And the shepherd will have the pen gated shut and usually sleep by the, the door. 
And in the morning, the shepherd waits because uh, the shepherd wakes up because all the sheep are starting to press towards the door, ready to be let out. They're done being in the pen for the night. And so the shepherd has to kind of get up, and, and he's got this whole flock, and he, and he climbs over the wall so he can be on the other side, almost like one of those rodeo people throwing open the gate door. And this, this Middle Eastern shepherd will throw open the gate, and the sheep just come barreling out of here. And this is the image, and Jesus will hearken back to this, but that's a whole other sermon for a whole, a whole other day. But this image of the kingdom, Jesus will hearken back to this when he's talking about John the Baptist. Since the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God has been, your, your English will typically say, violently advancing, and violent men lay hold of it. But the image that's being hearkened is not an image of violence, but in this image. The word here is prats. Say prats. Prats is actually one of the descendants of Jesus. He comes from the line of one of the sons of Yehuda. When Yehuda had two sons through Tamar, and one of them, his name was Perez, usually say, but the Hebrew is Prats. And the word means explodes. They named Prats Prats because there was these two twins, if you remember the story, fighting in the womb. And one stuck out their hand first, and they tied a red thread on it. And then went back inside, and the twins, and one came exploding out of the womb. And they named that one Prats. Same image here of the sheep, the same Hebrew word. They're exploding the breaking forth, the breaking open of the way is the same Hebrew word, prats. So when you think about judgment and you think about exile and you think about social ethics and the prophet wants to stop and say, you know the reason we don't do this? You know the reason that we keep buying into the socio-political idolatry ideologies that we have? Because we really don't have hope in the thing that God's doing in the world. We really don't think it's going to work. We are not just waiting at the gate, waiting for God just throw that door open because I know how this story is going to work. We're kind of like, I don't think grace is going to win. I don't, think, I don't think this whole God stuff is actually all it's cracked up to be. If you don't actually have a place where you can firmly plant your feet in hope, well, if you're not waiting, just waiting for God to show up, just, I dare you, just throw open that door. Just throw open that door. I'm ready. This is going to be really hard to be a part of this thing that God is doing. That, that consideration of hope, I thought, was interesting to place it there. So in light of all this, Micah then turns to the failure of leadership. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right. You build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price. Her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support. And they say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon, upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. Micah says the reason why most of this is falling apart is because the leaders aren't leading us to be the kinds of people we just reflected on. The leaders aren't insisting on persevering in hope. The leaders aren't helping us call a spade a spade, discern between light and darkness, and tell us to get ready. They've actually bought into everything else we've just been looking at. Some of us might find ourselves in places of leadership. You might, you might lead student groups or be getting closer and closer. Maybe you're, you're an alumni and you have graduated. Maybe you own a business. I don't know what it might be. 
for many of you in the room, but you are in whatever way a leader. Are we just leading to keep things going? Or are we calling God's people to remember where the story is headed and to not give up hope? Because if we give up on hope, then we, we, we know where the story goes. Judgment, exile. In the last days... So that now the now the prophet shifts towards this is what it this is what it could this is what God's plan is. This is why you sit at the gate waiting to burst forth. This is what God's story looks like. In the last days the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, "Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion." The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords in the plowshares and their spears in the pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. That would be nice. Everyone will sit under their own vine and their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. We know where our ideologies and empires are headed. This is where God's story is headed. And here's the question that you're like, ah, who cares? Do you believe this? Don't, don't answer, just think. Do you believe this? Or is this just poetic nicety nonsense? We know where our stories head. The ones that we build, the empires we build, the ideologies we craft, we know where that's headed. We also know where God's story is headed. Do we? Do we? Because if we do, it will change how we treat people. It will change what we put our trust in. It will change what we give ourselves to. It will change those things. Everyone will sit under their own. We're seeing it right now. Our ideologies, our pick our side hashtags, we're seeing it right now, where it, where it goes, where it leads to. Everybody sitting under their own vine and fig tree? There's this thing that God calls us to. Forgiveness, grace, loving our enemies. And we know where it heads. I just don't know if I believe in it. Honestly, I don't know if I believe in it most days. Somewhere up here I do. I'm not sure I believe in it in the ways that matter most. Marshal your, ch- and, and, so, and, this, and, and so in the midst of this, let's say we're back here and we're like, okay, yes, Marty, I do. I believe. I believe. I want to believe. I want to say yes to that. Then, then, the, then the prophet says, okay, let's remind ourselves of how this works. So as you like plant your flag and, and post your Instagram thing, like just remember how this, if you say yes to this, let's just remember how this works. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Beit Lechem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Oh, Christmas. Yay. Hold on. Sure, Christmas. Great. Let's do that some other time, like at Christmas. Today, let's hear the prophet Micah. Why does, my, my, why does Micah hearken these words? Who was from Bethlehem? David. David was from Bethlehem. 
And so you hear this and you're like, yes, we want King David again. We want the king that established us as a nation. And Micah says, remember where David was from? Bethlehem, little, little runt rural town of not like, like Kirksville. He's from Kirksville. He's not even from Kansas City. He's certainly not from Cincinnati. He's from, I'm sorry, that's my last joke. Um, <laughs> he's, from, he's from Bethlehem. Not only that, can you remember how many brothers he had? Seven. Remember where he landed in birth order? Last. Remember he was so young and such a runt and not the guy for the job, he wasn't even brought in for the Cinderella glass slipper thing. Right? He's from the little town of Bethlehem. He's the last of all the brothers. He's the least. The prophet says, remember how this works. It doesn't work with glorious elections and trumpets and wonderful social media platforms and great campaigns. And it happened because a little runt kid, like nine years old, had olive oil poured on his head. And everybody was like, really? And he was the guy that God wanted to use. Remember how this works. When you say, okay, God, I believe, immediately the prophet goes, do you? Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock. He will. Prophet says, I know how this story goes. You will have to trust it. You will have to trust that this does not work the way that we typically think it works in the world. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And so then the prophet kind of starts working towards the close of the case. The case is being put towards in, in front of the court, and the prophet kind of starts to, to swing around to kind of give some concluding thoughts before he turns it over to the judge for a verdict. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountain, mountains the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. Excuse me. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you. Also Aaron and Miriam, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Remember, remember how this story works. Remember it's worked in the past. Believe that it will work again in the future. And now the prophet's tone, the voice shifts and changes because now it's obvious where this case is headed. It's obvious that there's some guilt in the room with God's people. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? How can I fix this, the prophet says. This is not good. How do I turn this ship around? What do I do? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with, a th with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer the firstborn of my transgressions for the fruit of my body and for the sin of my soul? The prophet says, no. He has shown you, O oh mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? 
What is his long list of demands? How does this story work? Act justly. Love mercy. And walk humbly. Crazy demands. A hard story to trust, but not a list of wild demands from this suzerain of whom we are vassals. So here's, here's, the, here's where we're at. We just got done with the case. Now we're going to move towards the verdict and the conclusion. Here's the verdict. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city, and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, you wicked house? And the short ephah? That's, that's a short ephah would be, you, you go to the market and you're supposed to buy an ephah of grain, but they're trying to like skim the profits, so they give you a short ephah. It'd be a pure example of economic injustice. I'll get to some more relevant stuff here in a moment. I heard two chuckles, thank you. Shall I acquit some with, with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent, your inhabitants are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat, but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up, but save nothing. Because what you save, I will give to the sword. You will plant, but not harvest. You will press olives, but not use their oil. You will crush grapes, but not drink the wine. You have observed the statutes of Omri and the practices of Ahab's house. Omri was a political genius. Omri in, the, in biblical history was a guy who knew how to wheel and deal diplomatic treaties and relationships like no other king in biblical history. He knew how to, and we don't get this from the Bible, we actually get this from extra biblical history. Like Omri just had, you get a treaty and you get a treaty and you get a treaty. It was like the Oprah of treaties. You have followed their, and, 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 and we've given over to this worldly wisdom of establishing peace that God really doesn't want interest in. You have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. So here we come. Last little bit. I'm not even sure how long I've been up here. I'm sure I'm past time. Here comes the conclusion. I, I hope maybe along the way there was a slide at this point that you're like, hmm, that one feels like he put my name on it. Maybe not. Maybe it's still coming. Maybe my sermon's just bad. What misery, three parts, three parts. The first part of this conclusion is I have lost everything. Maybe some of you are like, there we go, that's my slide. <laughs> and honestly, a lot of us feel that way, especially at this weird time. I'm a campus minister. I, I love young adults. It's a hard time to be alive, trying to figure out, out stuff, trying to emotionally figure out who you are and what you're going to do and relationships falling apart. And we can feel, you, can, you can feel like you're on this slide real easily, legitimately. So if this is you, hear these words. What misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There's no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Like, here I am, and I am trying. I am trying, but there is nothing here for me. I have lost everything. Do not trust a neighbor. Put no confidence in a friend. Been there during college? Anybody had relate? My daughter as a freshman in high school. She's experiencing some friend stuff. Nobody going to chuckle at that? That's okay. 
having some friends like turn around and go backwards, having, that can be a big deal. Even when a woman, your best friends can get up here sometimes. Just kidding. Okay, last joke. Do not trust a neighbor, put no confidence in a friend, even with the woman who lies in your embrace, even your own spouse. Guard the words of your lips. This is a miserable existence. For a son dishonors his father. A daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. If you're like, hey, I think Jesus said that too. Good job. Because he did. He hearkened this passage in one of his teachings. Trying to say, this is the world we live in right now. This is the moment that we find ourselves in. This moment, Jesus said. When you don't even know who you can trust and you can't even trust the people closest to you. I have lost everything. Part two, but hope. I have lost everything. And I can choose despair, but I never lose hope. Not in God's story and not in God's economy. I have lost everything, but hope. As for me, I watch and hope. This is the same prophecy. Is it, even this, is it even the next verse? Yes, this is the next verse. After all of that, this is the next verse. I wonder if this is why Jesus was actually hearkening back to this path. Next verse, after all of that. You heard all that, right? All of that. Next verse, verse 7. But as for me, I watch and hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. This is somebody who, who has this like bigger, this bigger paradigm, this bigger picture. Picture. This bigger image that they cling to. This bigger, there's my moment, but then there's this thing that my moment's a part of. This moment will pass, but God's grace and God's hope won't. won't. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath. Did you hear that? This is somebody that's like coming to grips with. I get where the, I, I under, uh, guilty. Verdict, guilty. I have sinned. I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and upholds my cause. In the same sentence, the first half of the sentence is, I will, I, I will bear the Lord's wrath, but I also know that he will eventually be the same exact one who will plead my case and uphold my cause. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. Then my enemy will see it and will be covered with shame. She who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her downfall. Even now she will be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. The day for building your walls will come. The day for extending your boundaries. I love this weird paragraph of I am guilty, I have sinned, and I will bear the consequences of that, and I am absolutely where I need to stand to also be forgiven, redeemed, restored. I don't have to pick. I don't have to say I'm either righteous or I'm, I, 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 I have experienced understanding that I am under judgment. I have sinned. I will be restored. David did very similar things, talking about David just a moment ago understood that he was going to throw himself at the mercy of the same God under which he stood condemned. My eyes will see her down. Uh, let's go to the next slide. Last one. Here I stand. So the, so the first part was, I have lost everything. The second part, I have lost everything but hope. And if that's true, here I will stand. Here I will plant my feet. This is my song. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. 
which lives by itself in a forest, a fertile pasture land. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days long ago. As in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. Nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. They will put their hands over their mouths and their ears will become deaf. They will lick dust like a snake. Like creatures that crawl on the ground, they will come back trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be afraid of you. Who is a God like you? Who pardons my family? Reads this every year at Yom Kippur. Every year at Yom Kippur, we spend oh, it's a twenty-eight, a twenty-six hour fast. So you're not allowed to you're not allowed to shower. You can't put on deodorant. You can't brush your teeth. No food. It's a, it's a day of total self-restraint. You do not want to come hang out with us on that day. We are nasty. We are grody. We are like, ugh. We feel bad. We are hungry. We're cranky. And the whole day, we spend time together going through these different prayers, these Jewish prayers, reflecting on all the things that we need to bring to God from this last year. It's like it is one day out of 365. It is, it is the most depressing and at the end of the day, we've written down all these things on a piece of paper in a practice called tashlik. Say tashlik. All these things that we've written down. We talk about it as a family. And then we go to a moving body of water. We have a river by our house. We head out to the river by our house. And we read this passage after a whole day of like, this is how crappy you are. This is it. Here I stand in the midst of all my guilt and my shame. And we go to the very end, the closing verses of the prophet Micah. And we read these out loud. And every single one of us recites this verse. And we throw our papers into the water. And we watch them drift down the river. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgiveness, a transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? Every year we plant our feet here. Every year. Every year we read this. Like we have to believe this. If not, what hope do we have? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show us mercy. You will again have compassion on us. Again, weren't we here last year? Yeah, we were. What did he do last year? Compassion, grace mercy wonder what i'll do this year well where am i going to plant my feet i plant it squarely in this squarely in this muddy bank in the backwoods of ohio you will again have compassion on us you will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea you know where jonah was and it's not about the fish I didn't listen to the sermon and I was supposed to. <laughs> you will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham. You will. You will be faithful to Jacob. You will show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to your ancestors in days long ago. Golly, I hope that's the biblical truth. I hope that's true. If not, I do not know where my hope comes from. But if it is, praise be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to remind ourselves and we want to know um, how badly we need, we need hope. 
how badly we we need your grace and your rescue. And maybe it's that hope and it's that grace that really puts everything else in perspective. Maybe the prophet did it all backwards, or maybe the prophet left the ending on purpose because it is this inductive, wonderful, whatever, this lesson. Because maybe it is the hope of grace and forgiveness. Maybe that's the only thing we could ever cling to. And when we consider it, all of our weird camps and tribes and ideologies and everything else feel a little tinny like a little empty, like a little unsustainable. And maybe that's exactly what the prophet was trying to provoke us with. So would you help us believe that? Would you help us take a stand and put our feet squarely somewhere, but squarely planted in hope? God, we love you. We thanks for the, we're thankful for the way that you love us. And we pray all this in the resurrected, hopeful name of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm.